Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum. And tonight, uh, our program is going to be with Joel Richard Paul. He has written another book. We had him a few years ago uh, on his book on Justice Marshall. And this book is indivisible. It's really about the influence of Daniel Webster on the years 1800-1850 and uh, quite a cast of characters. And uh, certainly you don't write uh, the story the way that the American history books write it. <laughs> well, what would be the point of writing the book? If it <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it'd, be fun. it'd be fun to try to get your book into uh, you know, the high school classrooms. Uh, well, yes, I, if anyone's out, out there listening, they, they should definitely buy definitely do that, right. I'm definitely in favor of that. I'm definitely in favor of that. Not just for the truth value, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> my, my publisher would be very happy. Okay, good. All right. Well, so Indivisible... Your, your basic thesis is that Daniel Webster gave the idea to the nation that it was a nation and that it was that union and liberty, neither one could be eliminated. And that that's the way we have to think of ourselves. And before that time, people really didn't think of themselves as Americans. You have a lo- nice little piece of information right at the end of the book that we'll get to later that is evidence of that, which I think was a really interesting little tidbit, not the focus of anything, but that's was such a fascinating little thing about how many people read that as children. But Daniel Webster is this character, and I think we can start with him and a little bit of his background, because in spite of the fact that he's a major player and so many other things happen, he really is the focus of, of how we influenced ourselves to start thinking of ourselves instead of as Virginians, Bostonians, that kind of thing. So why don't yep. you give us a background? Well, you know, uh, when I first started writing the book about Daniel Webster, uh, a number of my friends thought um, I was writing a book about the guy who wrote the dictionary. (laughs) Uh, And uh, though Noah Webster was a distant relative of Daniel's, uh, he was not the guy who wrote the dictionary. Daniel Webster was uh, the leading advocate before the Supreme Court uh, in the first half of the 19th century, and he had tremendous influence on the Marshall Court. And as you said, mm-hmm. I wrote this book about John Marshall, and so inevitably I, I saw this close relationship between these, these two men. Uh, much of what we think of as John Marshall's greatest opinions uh, were largely lifted from the briefs that Daniel Webster argued before the court. He was also a congressman, a senator from Massachusetts. Uh, he was twice the Secretary of State, uh, four times presidential candidate. Uh, but the most significant thing about Daniel Webster was uh, he was the greatest orator of his time. Um, uh, he was recognized not just in the United States, but throughout the world. Uh, in uh, in uh, Europe, uh, for example, um, uh, he, was, he was perhaps more famous than he was in the United States. Uh, uh, King Louis Philippe in France invited him to come have dinner with him in France. Uh, he subsequently had a portrait, a life-size portrait of Daniel Webster painted 30 by 16 feet, uh, which now hangs in Faneuil Hall in Boston, uh, and, and, and detail of which is on the cover of my book. Another reason to buy my book. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, and and Webster, uh, Webster lived in a moment in time in which most people didn't understand what it meant to be an American. 
uh, we didn't think of ourselves as Americans. We thought of ourselves as New Yorkers, as Virginians, as, as, uh, uh, as uh, South Carolinians. America was a concept. It wasn't a reality for most people. Um, and there were all these different competing ideas of American national identity uh, at that moment in time. Uh, John Quincy Adams had one idea. Henry Clay had a different idea. Andrew Jackson, uh, most famously, had this notion of, of, a, of a kind of racial identity, mm-hmm. that white Europeans were Americans, only white Europeans. Uh, he had nothing but disdain for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And what, what Daniel Webster did was he pushed back against that, and he redefined what it meant to be an American. He said that we are made as Americans by the Constitution. It is the Constitution that made us all Americans. Regardless of our race, regardless of our faith, regardless of where we came from, we're all Americans because the Constitution made us so. It is the organic expression of the American public. Mm -hmm. And that idea, as you alluded to, became the central idea of American national identity from the 1840s Mm -hmm. uh, right up to the present day um, until uh, a recent president. I'll get back to that. You have one line in your book that I, I got such a, a, a kick out of, and I'm going to read it a little bit later. Okay. Um, but um, I think a little bit of data is useful. So 1800, Daniel Webster, about to graduate from college. Um, we think of the, thir- the Americas, these 13 colonies that are now united. The, the first two presidents are done. Jefferson is in the is about to enter the White House, right? And how many people are there in America? A couple million, something like that. Uh, okay, this, I didn't know there would be math questions. Oh, I'm very sorry, but, but, <clears throat> but we don't need the number. But what we need is it was there were five southern states and 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 eight northern states, and the population was split almost evenly between those two. No, no, it was much more populated in the north than the south. It was. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so there were more people. I thought Virginia was the most populous state. Virginia was the most populous state, but uh-huh. other states like South Carolina didn't have much of anything. Oh, okay. All right. So oh, I, I, and the, the reason I went there is because I wanted to go to the three-fifths rule. Yes. Because there's all kinds of people, you know, you're a constitutional lawyer, you know, you know, there's all kinds of people who seem to misunderstand this and its influence and what the purpose was of this uh, compromise that was made. So why don't we talk about that to try to clarify that? Because I just... Not that everybody will listen and, and, and suddenly understand. Right. But <laughs> right. So, so, so I, I think a lot of people misunderstand the three-fifths rule in this regard. They think it's offensive. Uh, people, just to be clear for those people who don't remember constitutional law, um, uh, the Constitution made um, African Americans who were enslaved three-fifths of a person for purposes of the census. And the significance of that was um, that they didn't count as much as white people did for purposes of uh, um, allocating seats in Congress. Now, there was an argument at, at the uh, uh, Constitutional Convention mm-hmm. as to whether or not they should count as, at all. Um, if they were enslaved people, after all, they, they had no free will. Why should they count towards, uh, t- towards the total number of people for purposes of appropriating congressional seats? The three-fifths rule gave the South more votes in Congress than they would otherwise have had, mm-hmm. more electoral votes than they otherwise would have had. 
it is said that uh, Thomas Jefferson was the first black president because Thomas Jefferson was elected because of the inflated number of electoral votes that the southern states had as a result of the three-fifths rule. Mm -hmm. And the three-fifths rule, it should be also said, is just one of many examples in the Constitution's text, which not only uh, allowed slavery, but preserved slavery that made it that made it more difficult for the Congress to regulate slavery out of existence. And, and that's another important point, I think. Now, if I understand it correctly, if the Southerners had decided at any time between 1800 and the Civil War to free all the slaves, then all of those people would then have one equal one vote rather than three-fifths of a vote. And they could have increased their power and influence in the country by another two-fifths per slave than they had before, have more congressional seats, have more power. Was that ever thought about by the South as a remedy to, to have more power as they, were, no. as they were losing power? No, because Southern whites were more fearful of the, the, what they perceived as a threat of, of emancipating African-Americans and having them uh, uh, retaliate for the oppression that they had suffered under. Um, and they also felt that it was many Southern whites who were not necessarily um, pro-slavery feared that the, that the white population and the black population couldn't coexist. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, there were a number of prominent people, including John Marshall, who favored the African Colonization Society mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a solution. That is, that, that African Americans who were, who were freed should be sent back to Africa, uh, and that that would be the solution to the race problem in America. Now, I think a little piece of history from Haiti would be useful, because a lot of people don't know about this, and it's real early on in right. this process, and it gives, gives a context for their fear. Yeah, so, so uh, it, as many people know, there was a, there was a revolution in Haiti, uh, in, a very bloody revolution in Haiti, in which uh, uh, Haitians won their independence and their freedom, um, and a, a great many uh, French people were killed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so American uh, so, Southerners in, in the United States feared that, that that kind of slave insurrection could occur in America. And, and, and that, was, that was kind of the, night, the ultimate nightmare that Southern whites lived with. Another element of that is that when that was put down, a large number of free blacks went to New Orleans. And that New Orleans, a, a complication is that New Orleans had a fairly sizable portion of their population were free African-Americans for the years 1810 or so, 1815, all the way up to the Civil War. Although as you got near the Civil War, they, they were they were starting to be repressed again. But that's another complication, I think. That Right. Well, well you know, many Southern whites, uh, one of the reasons the South favored uh, the expansion of slavery in the West mm. was to relieve the pressure on Southern whites. They, they thought that if slaves were sort of dispersed throughout the country, that the threat of a, of a slave insurrection would be reduced for mm. Southerners. Um, uh, uh, and... Uh, some even tried to argue that the slaves would be better off if they were sent to the West mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah, and the reason that it would become a smaller number is because there were no new slaves coming other than those who were being born, right? Because the law, at, at not, not at 1801, but at what point was it no longer legal, although it was still done, 
no longer legal to bring in slaves. So, so, so the Constitution uh, establishes that um, for the first 20 years of the Republic, um, uh, the slave trade would be protected. Mm-hmm. But after 20 years, Congress could outlaw the slave trade as they did. Now, why did the South agree to that? They agreed to that because the principal asset of the South were the slaves. Mm-hmm. Enslaved people of the South were the greatest financial asset, capital asset that Southern whites owned. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't want to continue to expand the population of African-Americans in the South who were enslaved because doing so would mean lowering the value of their assets. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they agreed to this sort of 20-year rule. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, that was when um, Congress did, in fact, outlaw the slave trade. So it's almost like trying to get a monopoly on, on, on your capital so that your capital asset would grow exactly. in value. Right. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's, now that we have that context, let's, let's you back up. talk about Daniel Webster? You can go look back and talk to Daniel <laughs> Webster and then what Daniel Webster did about this and the influence he did. And also, it's interesting that, that an orator like him and then later Frederick Douglass had such a big influence. I think maybe mentioning that TV didn't exist at the time. Is, is a useful TV didn't function. exist at the time? TV didn't exist then, no. Uh, oh. For those of you who are wondering. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, Daniel Webster uh, was the greatest orator of his time, perhaps the greatest orator of all time. Uh, he could get up and give a speech extemporaneously with no notes uh, for four hours. Um, and people in the audience were absolutely mesmerized by him. They describe the experience as being as being transported. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was hypnotic. He had these very uh, dark, burning eyes that were hypnotic. People mm-hmm. said, uh, and uh, George Techner, who was a professor of history at Harvard, uh, described the first time he heard Daniel Webster speak. He gave a very famous speech at Plymouth, Massachusetts, where he denounces his own constituents for their involvement in the slave trade. And, and Tickner talks about how his head felt like it was going to explode. He had never experienced such excitement before, and that he was afraid to come near Daniel Webster because he thought he would burst into flames. Um, and, and that was the kind of uh, power that Webster had, which is one of the reasons why he was known as Godlike Daniel, mm-hmm. because they said he had the voice of God. And that you would burn if you looked at him too clear, carefully. That's another or turn thing. into a pillar of salt. Turn into, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the, uh, uh, one of the most famous incidents about Daniel Webster's oratory in the book, um, when uh, General Marquis de Lafayette came to America uh, to tour triumphantly 50 years after the anniversary of uh, uh, the American Revolution, uh, he went to the Bunker Hill for the dedication for the Bunker Hill Monument. And Daniel Webster was chosen as the keynote speaker of the day. And a crowd of 40,000 Bostonians had gathered on this hillside. Uh, and they had erected a tent so that the women would not get sunburned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were sitting under this tent. And as Daniel Webster gets up to speak, the crowd rushes forward. They're so excited and they knock the tent over on top of 15,000 women. The stands collapse. There's total bedlam. People are running around. They don't know what's going on. And the, and the city marshal says to Daniel Webster, well, you know, that's it. There's nothing we can do about that. Mm-hmm. And Daniel Webster says, nothing is impossible. And somehow, 
and, and I've read this account in multiple newspapers at the time, mm-hmm. somehow he projects his voice over this crowd of people who are basically rioting at this point and says, be silent. Mm-hmm. And the crowd stops and they pull the tent off the women and everybody sits down mm-hmm. and they resume the proceedings. And that's why he was known as Godlike Daniel. He had that kind of power over people. And just imagine trying to project your voice out to 40,000 people, right. not, even if they're not writing. I need a microphone to talk to a class at 80. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I think you could do at least 150. <laughs> Maybe if I really <laughs> shouted. Okay. So, so we have this order that just emotionally blows people's minds. Um, but he also gives them an idea. In the midst of these, you know, there, it's not like, uh, I mean, Fidel Castro apparently uh, would, would, could talk for four hours too. But, but people fell but people asleep. people had to sit there. Yeah, they had to sit there, exactly. People fell asleep. In this case, right. people were on the edge of their seats uh, listening to what he had to say. And if you read those speeches, which you have, do you feel that power or is it just a personal power? Um, his speeches sometimes ran as long as 60 to 70 printed pages. Mm-hmm. And, and when he would give these speeches... Uh, people would sit in the audience trying desperately to write every word down. And then they would go and they would publish them in newspapers all over the country. So there's multiple different versions of exactly what he said. But the speeches have the language in them of Shakespeare. I mean, his command of language was absolutely extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And when you read the speeches, you're sort of blown away by it. Now, I think if I listened to four hours of someone in this kind of florid language that he uses, I would fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Um, But something about his presence... His, his, his voice, uh, his, his, his dr- drama mm-hmm. uh, was such that people felt, you know, energized by him. Mm-hmm. As a student, he was known for being able to memorize, right, in addition? Yeah. Well, yeah, so he wasn't a great student. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not a great student. Um, uh, he came from a poor family. He had, there were 10 children in his family. His father was a... Was a f- farmer in New Hampshire, and yeah, he was not uh, well off by any means. Uh, his dad took a mortgage on the house uh, to send him to school, and he went to Phillips Academy mm-hmm. uh, in New Hampshire. And um, at the time, one of the things you did in school was you you learned you memorized speeches and you stood up and you recited in class. And the first occasion in which he was called on to stand up and recite in class. He froze, and he was terrified. He couldn't say a word. Mm-hmm. He was thrown out of the institution. He was thrown out of Phillips Academy. Uh, and he was so humiliated by that experience. His father, after all, had you know, spent all this money, and uh, he was determined that he was going to overcome his fear of mm-hmm. public speaking. And he developed a capacity. Uh, he had a capacious memory. He had a, developed a capacity for memorization that is just astounding. He could memorize 70 verses in the Bible in one weekend. Uh, and he uh, he used this this capacious memory to um, enable him to give great speeches, and I guess it gave him greater confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, when he went to Dartmouth uh, subsequently, he was a very mediocre student at Dartmouth, mm-hmm. but he was he was the guy who won all the prizes for public speaking, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and that's kind of how he got started. Now he was unknown. I mean, he, he, he became, he graduated in 1801. He became a member of the Massachusetts Bar, having studied with other lawyers. Not, he didn't go to Hastings, right? 
No, no that, was, that was his misfortune. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1805, he, he passes the Massachusetts bar, becomes lawyer. And the lecture in Plymouth, if I remember, the first big public lecture uh, was when? A couple of years later, right? Still very young. Right. I, I, I don't remember the exact yeah. I mean, well, his first, his first great public speech was in 1812, mm-hmm. uh, condemning the war of 1812. Uh, he, was, he was a kind of, he was famous initially for being an anti-war activist. Mm-hmm. Um, he was elected to Congress uh, because he had led the fight in New Hampshire against the war. And mm-hmm. he was first a congressman from, from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And uh, uh, he later opposed the Mexican-American War with Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, but the speech at Plymouth is the speech that really put him on the map. Mm-hmm. And that was the speech that I alluded to earlier where he, he condemns slavery. And he says, it was, this is the occasion, uh, the anniversary of the arrival of the pilgrims in America. Mm-hmm. And he says that it is unworthy for the descendants of the pilgrims uh, to engage in the slave trade or to, or to do business with people who are engaged in the slave trade. And he condemns not just Southern slaveholders, mm-hmm. but more significantly, he condemns his own constituents and says, you know, the people who are helping by uh, running slave ships, the people who are uh, producing steel that's being used as manacles, the people who are profiting from cotton, all these people have dirty hands. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're committing a sin. And and that speech, you know, immediately transports him to a much higher level of national attention. It was a little like being against uh, South Africa and saying we're not going to trade with South Africa under un, when it was under apartheid. You know, making it basically saying we're not going to we shouldn't deal with the South or or its economy if they are going to continue with the slave trade. Yes, sort of. but 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 it was it was it was more than that because uh-huh. he was he was literally pointing out his own constituents, his own people, and saying, "You guys have dirty hands," mm-hmm. and, and and that was not a you know it it was popular in this country to to say that we we were opposed to business doing business with South Africa. It was by no means popular at the time to to say that well we should stop uh, engaging in the cotton trade. But he was persuasive enough that he kept being reelected, right? I mean, in spite of that. Well, uh, he, not always, but uh, yeah, no, he, he was—he never lost an election. Oh, um, he was—he um, was elected from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but then subsequently he decided to move to Massachusetts, and that's mm-hmm. when he became a congressman from Boston initially, and then later senator. Okay, so why don't we say a little bit about the War of eighteen twelve? Because he was against the war. This is a war that you know wasn't anywhere. I mean, there's a couple of funny stories about it. I mean, funny in the sense that ironic that the last battle was after it was already over, that kind of thing. The only great American victory. The only great American victory. Was after we declared yeah. peace. And, and there, there's other details about like that, you know, the Louisiana pur- purchase uh, from Napoleon was because he needed money to fight his wars in Europe. I thought when I read that, I thought, but you have a, a, a detail about we only paid $3 million a year. You know, we, it was paid over a long period of time. So Napoleon really didn't get that much money from us in time to do him any good, right? Uh, that, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we got the land. He didn't get what he wanted. So we beat Napoleon at that, right? Yeah. So, so and, and there were a lot of people who really didn't... Uh, oh, and then Americans made a lot of money, American farmers, selling food to Europe during the Napoleonic Wars. A little like 
you know, when now that Ukraine uh, is, is being hurt and therefore can't get as much out, that that affects the farmers here as well, that kind of thing. So there was a big debate as to which side we should be on right. in, in the, right. you know, the French side, should be against the French or against the British, and both of them were not being good to American shipping. So why don't you just give yeah. a little so, so, complication I mean, at, here? So at, at the moment in time when uh, the War of 1812 started, before, right before it started, um, both France and Britain were seizing ships U.S. ships on the high seas, and they were seizing our ships. Um, the French were actually seizing more of our ships at the time than the British were. But the difference was the British impressed some of the American sailors into the British Navy because they believed they were actually British citizens. Now, that may sound outrageous mm-hmm. today, except that under British law, uh, every able-bodied British man uh, could be conscripted to serve in the British Navy. And if they thought you were a Brit on an American ship, they had the right to impress you into the ship, into the Navy. So um, Americans were outraged by this. Henry Clay, coming from the West, uh, decides in his first term in Congress that this, is, um, this is, gives us a great pretext for seizing Canada um, <laughs> because um, the Westerners wanted Canadian territory. Mm-hmm. And it was, the, it was the desire for Canadian territory that was really what was driving Henry Clay. And Henry Clay and the other war hawks, including John C. Calhoun, uh, basically put pressure on uh, uh, Madison, mm-hmm. President Madison, uh, to declare war. Uh, and at first, Madison really wasn't interested in this, but eventually Madison you know, gets the war fever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we declare war on Britain so we can attack Canada. Well, we got whooped. Um, uh, we, have, we have tried at least three times, Americans have tried at least three times to annex Canada, and it turns out they don't want us. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so, and so uh, uh, the British counter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, people think it's outrageous that the British burned Washington. Well, before the British burned Washington, they were acting in retaliation against the Americans who went in and burned the British capital in Canada at York. Mm-hmm. So we burned down the capital at York, and they came in and they burned down our capital in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, you think that's I, fair? Well, I, you know, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to get deported. Or but I, 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 I do think that, that we were the, were the instigators of that war. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a little bit, if you want to use the analogy of Ukraine, it's a little bit like when the Ukrainians attack uh, Russian uh, air bases. Um, is that fair? Yeah. Well, Russians deserve it. Yeah. So there was a, there was a nice little bit that I hadn't read before uh, in your book, which was the John Henry plot, uh, 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 a, a sneaky, a, a dirty trick by the French, which I thought was very interesting in order to try to get the Americans to turn on the Brits. So why don't you tell about the John Henry plot a little bit? Oh, oh boy. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget the details oh, okay. of it. So the, I, I'll just do the outline because okay. I, I won't okay. remember the okay. details either. But anyway, the, the French had some diplomat come say he was John Henry and, and, and give, oh, oh, right. give Madison this idea that, yeah. So, 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 so basically, I mean, of course, Madison didn't know it was the French, but this guy, John Henry, shows up at the, at the White House uh, and persuades Madison that he has some secret papers that he wants to sell to Madison. And Madison pays, I forget how much money. $50,000. $50,000 uh, for these papers. Um, In that money at that time, right? Right. Which... It's which, worth a million or something, though. Which purports to show that the British are intending to um, uh, take—I uh, forget what they were going to take. But they were going to take something. 
Yeah, I, I don't, I don't remember, remember either. But anyway, <laughs> it was the whole thing—the whole thing was a French plot, and yeah. it was it, they were, it was it was a it was a false flag. Yeah, and it did it did help. Yeah, us go to war against Britain. I want to make a, a, an important detail here uh, in this conversation. Now, when did you finish writing this book? Like a year and a half ago, or so, or a year ago, or so? Uh, about two years ago now. About two years ago now, and I just finished reading it yesterday. So it's very important whenever I interview an author about these things. You know, I I've just finished the book. <laughs> Just in case they don't remember something, it's really not their fault. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's very confusing. I I I, re- I was in Washington recently, and I was talking about uh, on the same day. Uh, I was speaking about the John Marshall book at one event, and then subsequently at the U.S. Supreme Court Historical Society about about the the new book. And I I had them all confused. I was John Marshall was was um, working on the dictionary. I don't know. All <laughs> very baffled by it. You know? All right. Well, so. Now we have the context for the War of 1812. There's so many wars that need a new context, right? So, um, as you said, we'll, we'll skip over all the rest of the Canadian things, except for, except for tell a little bit about the Caroline affair, because that was, that was interesting. But we really had a lot of people right. Right. that were agitating to fight right. Canada. Right. And Canada at the time had only 200,000 people in it and lots of land. So, you know, yeah. it was... So, yeah. so the Car- I, the- Regionally, this is a little secret. Don't yeah. tell my editor uh, <laughs> that I told you this, but he knows it. The original book was going to all be all, only about the Caroline affair. Oh, um, and I, I spent a lot of time in the British Library uh, uh, looking up all the details of this mm-hmm. affair, and, and I was very proud of myself. And then my editor decided he had other ideas for the book. <laughs> so um, uh, the Caroline affair was was. Uh, was a very famous uh, cause celeb in America in the 19th century. What happened was um, there, there was a, a very brief spark of revolution in Canada. And um, it was very quickly extinguished by British soldiers. And then a group of folks in um, uh, Buffalo, New York, I believe this was 1840, or 1837, decide that um, they're going to launch a revolution in Canada. Um, and so they cross the Niagara River uh, and they seize an island uh, called Navy Island, this tiny little rock in the middle of the Niagara River. Uh, and they declare a new republic of Canada on this little rock. And the British kind of think it's a joke, mm-hmm. basically. It is a joke. It's a mouse <laughs> reward. And, and except the Americans start ferrying over all these arms to this island and they start firing on British ships and on British forts in Canada. And after a while, the British get pretty sick and tired of this. So they decide they're going to retaliate. And they retaliate um, by, and and they don't want to invade the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of a limited operation. The Caroline is a ship that was chartered to carry men and guns and supplies over to the Navy Island. And there was something like a thousand men on this island. Mm -hmm. So the British decide at night, they sneak into... Uh, across the river, um, they uh, get on board the ship, uh, which is essentially unoccupied. A bunch mm-hmm. of guys run off the ship, mm-hmm. and nobody is hurt. Um, uh, they set fire to the ship, and they cut it loose from its moorings, and it goes over the Niagara Falls, which is a very dramatic scene. That was going right. to be the cover of my book. Yeah. I thought I'd sell a million copies. I thought I saw that when I was reading. You saw that, yeah, right? Yeah. It was very dramatic. <laughs> So um, my, 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 my partner wanted to call the book The Fire on the Falls. Um, but I negotiated with him. We just called the chapter Fire on the Falls. And, and, and so, so the ship goes down in flames. 
And in the process of the sort of melee that occurs, shots are fired between the British on the, sh on the ship and the people on the shore, and one man is killed. Um, but the story takes on a life of its own, and people begin to come up with these ridiculous uh, stories about how you know, hundreds of Americans were killed on board this ship. They set fire to the ship and sent it over the falls, and all these men were killed. So it becomes a big cause celeb, and people are calling for war on, on Canada as a result. Uh, and at this point in time, Webster becomes Secretary of State. And it falls on Webster to try to negotiate this problem before things get out of hand. There's enormous war fever in Washington. And the British, uh, at the same time, uh, a, a British soldier who was drunk uh, is in a bar in, in Buffalo, New York. Mm -hmm. And he claims that he was one of the people who was fighting on the side of the Brits in this mm -hmm. Carolinian incident. It turns out he wasn't. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> he's instantly it's a bar, arrested. you know. Arrested, and he's threatened <laughs> with um, uh, capital punishment for the murder of this one, one man. Mm. And the British government objects and demands his release, and the Americans refuse. And the British basically say that if you hang him, we're going to go to war mm. uh, against the United States. And it falls to Webster to negotiate a settlement. And um, at the same time this is going on... Um, Maine is having a war, in quotes, with Canada over a portion of Maine which the Canadians claim is theirs and which Maine claims is theirs, known as the Aroostook War. And um, nobody's actually killed, no shots are fired, but there's a lot of roughing up that goes on. <laughs> and, and so um, Webster negotiates this agreement with um, Lord Ashburton, who's sent as the British representative, that basically redefines the border of Maine mm -hmm. and also backs off from the claims about uh, the Caroline case. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is the story about the border. Yes, it's very interesting. Uh, so so <laughs> the problem Webster faces is um, he doesn't really care where you draw the border between... How many people in this room care where the border is between Maine and, and, and Canada, Right. It doesn't matter, but it matters to people in Maine a lot, and it also matters to people in Massachusetts because, because of reasons that we don't have to get into. So um, the Massachusetts legislature and the Maine legislature both um, are unwilling to compromise with the Canadians, and they're demanding a large portion of Canada. And Webster realizes he's not going to get this from the Canadians. But Webster has a map, a map which he knows is a forgery, but the map would show that the Br British are entitled to more of Maine than the British are actually asking for. Mm -hmm. And he claims that this map was the map that Benjamin Franklin used in negotiating the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Mm -hmm. And he, go, he takes the map to the people in Maine, the, the Maine legislature, and says, look, you guys, you know, I'm afraid the British are going to find a copy of this map, and then we're going to be in real trouble. It's going to be really hard to negotiate. So I think we should settle for this. Mm -hmm. Meantime, Lord Ashburton's doing the same thing on his side with the British Parliament, and between the two of them, um, they're able to reach an agreement. He uses a different map. Which a different is, map, which, which is also a forgery. Which is also a forgery, which shows that the, that the <laughs> and, British and shows the that the other are entitled to yeah. more land than, 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 in fact, the And Webster and Ashburton actually kind of friends. 
Yes, they were. Well, they were. They were <laughs> friends. colleagues anyway. They were friendly. He had, he had actually had worked for Ashburton. Ashburton uh, owned Baring Brothers mm-hmm. um, Bank in in Britain, and uh, Webster done some business for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, I thought that was a great solve a diplomatic problem, both using forged maps in order to get people to make the compromise. It sounds so like <laughs> politics. So, so we're going to we're going to say a little bit about Jackson. And I wanted to I wanted to quote uh, uh, one of Joel's lines about about uh, Jackson in his run for the presidency. He he promised to drain the federal swamp. That was one of the things that that's one of the things that Jackson he referred promised. to the Augean stables. Augean stables, yes. Yes. So so this is this is uh, Joel's line. His pledge to drain the swamp was sheer trumpery. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> you want to tell us a little bit about Jackson as being one of the first to drain the swamp? <laughs> so, so Andrew Jackson runs for president in 1828. Uh, and he has really no platform apart from the fact that he hates bankers uh, and he doesn't like uh, Native Americans either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he doesn't care about enslaved people. Um, he doesn't care about much, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but he claims that he was cheated out of the presidency in 1824 by a corrupt bargain between uh, uh, John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay. Um, and he, he gets elected um, based on a, a wave of southern rural populist nationalism, uh, which is aimed against cultural elites, uh, largely in northeastern cities, uh, and, and bankers and, and, and commerce generally. And um, he has this reputation for being um, violent, hmm. uh, for being I- impetuous and, and incurious. Um, <laughs> he uh, is elected despite the fact that he, and we talked about this earlier, mm-hmm. that we talked about another aspect of this earlier, uh, he's in- elected in spite of the fact that um, uh, he, hasn't had, he has had a, sort of, he's been involved in a sexual scandal. Um, uh, his, his, he was uh, having an adulterous relationship with a married woman who was his wife, who, who subsequently became his wife, but she was married to another man when he married her, which is another story. So uh, all of that, all, despite all those, those problems, he gets elected. Um, and what does he do? He, he concentrates power in the presidency. Uh, he has an autocratic style. Uh, he fires hundreds of perfectly innocent, competent well-meaning civil servants in Washington and replaces them with incompetent cronies, many of whom are corrupt. Um, he, uh, uh, when, when, there's a, when there's the first uh, pandemic, um, uh, malaria pandemic that hits, a uh, cholera pandemic rather, that hits Washington, D.C., um, uh, he sort of shrugs the whole thing off. He figures, well, you know, every, everyone's got to die sometime. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tells his when, when his daughter, his, his daughter-in-law complains to him uh, that she's, fear, she's afraid for her life mm-hmm. because of this cholera pandemic, uh, he writes her and says, ah, don't worry about it. You know, everyone's got to die. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, he, he ignores every constitutional norm of his office. Up until uh, Andrew Jackson, it was thought that presidents could only veto legislation if, if they believed in their hearts that it was unconstitutional. Uh, Andrew Jackson decided, no, he could veto legislation whenever he felt like it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, and he was, of course, a racist. Uh, uh, and, uh, and if any of this sounds familiar, <laughs> I, 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 um, I'm not responsible. <laughs> and ironically, uh, because he was successful, he, he set a trend of, of uh, generals uh, winning. Uh, the uh, presidency uh, when they had no platform and no, no, you know, they were unknowns in their way other than being generals so that people could believe whatever they wanted to about what they were going to do. But the irony uh, of it was mm -hmm. that it, it, it wasn't the Jacksonian Democrats who, who chose generals after Andrew Jackson um, to represent them. It was the Whigs, the opponents of Andrew Jackson, who chose generals thinking that they could sort of make them look a little Jacksonian-like mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, while disguising their Whig ambitions. And so we have William Henry Harrison, who unfortunately died in office, uh, a month in office, and we have Zachary Taylor, who died in his first year in office. Mm -hmm. And both of them followed by nitwits <laughs> as their vice presidents. <laughs> Do you want to talk about one of the nitwits or not? Oh, sure. We can talk about that. <laughs> I love talking about which nitwit. Oh, I was thinking of Tyler. Hey, Tyler. John Tyler. Yeah. So John Tyler. Uh, John Tyler is the vice president under William Henry Harrison. And um, he was chosen to balance the ticket. Uh, because after all, no vice president had ever seceded to the presidency. They had nothing to do. Who cared who the vice president was? So John Tyler gets elected uh, a vice president. Uh, Harrison dies, um, and uh, Tyler, uh, uh, Webster and other people go to Tyler and basically tell Tyler. Uh, Webster's, Webster is the uh, Secretary of State under um, uh, Harrison. Hmm. Uh, they go to Tyler and they basically say, well, you know, we know that you're really not up to the task here, so we'll tell you what to do. And he basically says, you know, get lost. Hmm. And so Tyler, uh, Tyler turns out to be... Um, an even bigger racist than Andrew Jackson, mm -hmm. uh, who is um, determined to conquer Mexico and steal Mexican territory and annex Texas. Uh, and he is disowned by his own party. He has the distinction of being the only president who had no political party. His own party wouldn't support him. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, that was one nitwit. And then the <laughs> other nitwit uh, who succeeded after, because when, when the... The Whigs nominated Zachary Taylor, another military hero, um, uh, again, uh, who had this sort of Jackson-like allure. Uh, he was a common man, they said, even though he was actually from a very wealthy family. And they claimed he'd grown up in a log cabin, but he had not grown up in a log cabin. He'd grown up <laughs> in a big plantation. <laughs> anyway. The, he visited the, the log cabin. He visited, on the plantation. Yeah, he saw a log cabin once <laughs> um, as he rode by in his carriage. Um, so, so Zachary Taylor um, dies in his first year in office. But, but you know, when, when they nominate Jack, Zachary Taylor, um, they stick Millard Fillmore on the ticket mm -hmm. um, to balance him because they wanted someone with a funny first name <laughs> and who had absolutely nothing to offer. Millard Fillmore was the comptroller of New York, not usually a stepping stone to the White House. <laughs> uh, and, of course, it didn't matter who was the vice president because it couldn't possibly happen twice, could it? But that's exactly what happened. So Zachary Taylor dies, and Millard Fillmore becomes president. And Millard Fillmore is the guy who's in office. And again, Webster is the, is the Secretary of State. 
He's in, he's in office at the moment uh, of crisis in 1850. Mm-hmm. The, the compromise. So let's let's back up a little bit. The one story you told about Zachary Taylor, which I just got such a kick out. Of. So the the political parties would nominate people. They might not even be at the the convention. And in this case, General Zachary Taylor, if I've got the guy right, was at his plantation in in in, in uh, Louisiana, and. The party nominated him because they couldn't decide on somebody else. And so after many, many ballots, they picked General Zachary Taylor. So he wasn't expecting this at all. They sent him a, a letter. letter. Postage post, due. Postage due. Tell the story. <laughs> postage due. He gets a postage due letter. This just in case this happens to any of you. <laughs> he gets a letter from the convention. Postage due. So he returns it to the post office unopened. Right. Now he's, I'm not going to pay the postage. <laughs> he doesn't find out he's, he's the nominee of his party until months later. A m- months later, they finally sent him one with right. stamps on it. Right, so that they, would find it out. So they could find out that he was the president. Yeah. I find that one of the most hilarious stories in, in American history. Did he, did he run the budget as frugally as not, as not paying the stamps? Or? Well, you know, it, it actually turned out Zachary Taylor was not a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually, even though he was a slaveholder and he was from Virginia like all the other presidents, mm-hmm. uh, he, he actually was an opponent of slavery. Mm-hmm. A, and um, he probably would have resisted the expansion of slavery in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, but he died and John Tyler was, a, was very much... Uh, uh, support of slavery and the expansion of slavery in the West. Right. And, and John Tyler, we should also say, just, just as one final note here, just in case anyone was thinking of voting for him, <laughs> uh, John Tyler, uh, after he leaves the White House because uh, his party's not going to nominate him again, um, he goes and he joins the Confederacy. And he, and he, he supported the Confederacy in the Civil War. Wow. All right, so... Let's go back to Webster. You mentioned him several times. He's the Secretary of State under both Whig presidents. It's the subject of my book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so Webster has made those, those two, you know, Secretary of State observations. He negotiates a lot of things really quite cleverly. He's a very good compromiser. Um, and he's totally against slavery and is leading up to the compromise, the Missouri Compromise of 1850 and what he's got to do. Now, where, what is his... The political office at that time. Why was he so influential? There was sort of at that time. Right. It was Clay, Calhoun, yeah. and yeah. Webster as the yeah. three influential people. Right. Okay. So you just put a lot on a plate. I did. I, I expect you so, to talk so, for another hour. <laughs> so, um, so, so the so here's the problem. 1849, as everyone in this room knows, uh, uh, we discover gold in California. Uh, California's population suddenly soars. It's the fastest growing state in, in, in the country, fastest growing territory in, in the country. And um, all of a sudden, Californians want to join the Union. Now, we didn't have to let California into the Union at that time. We could have delayed it except for the gold because we didn't want the Russians, the Spanish, or the French, or the Mexicans to get a hold of the gold. So we had to let California into the Union. Okay, here's the problem. There's 11 slave states, there's 11 free states. The free states have a majority of, of, of the votes in the House of Representatives. Um, if you let California into the Union as a free state as it wished to, uh, then the free states would have a majority in both houses and they could legislate uh, to end slavery. So the southern states don't want that to happen. So um, 
Clay and the southern states threatened to secede uh, if California is admitted. So Henry Clay goes to Daniel Webster with a proposal. And the reason he goes to Daniel Webster with a proposal is because Henry Clay is the leader of the, of the Western states. He's, he is the spokesperson of the West. Uh, you have John C. Calhoun, who's the spokesperson of the South uh, and, and, and the slaveocracy. And you have Daniel Webster, who is the conscience of New England. Uh, and these three men together basically represent the whole country. So Clay knows that that in order to get any compromise here, he needs the support of both guys. So he goes to Daniel Webster and he says, I've got an idea. We let California enter the Union as a free state. Uh, we kind of reserve the question of what happens with the other parts of Mexican territory that we stole, uh, like New Mexico and Nevada and so forth. But we won't decide that question now. But the North has to agree to enforce the fugitive slave laws, which they had never enforced. Now, the Constitution requires the states to enforce the fugitive slave laws, but the, the, no northern jury and no northern judge was ever going to send a fugitive slave back to the South. So he has to get Webster's support because Webster can persuade the other northern congressmen and senators to vote mm-hmm. for the fugitive slave law. And without the fugitive slave law, the South is going to secede and the Union is going to collapse. Now, here's Daniel Webster, who has made his whole career based on two principles, one opposing slavery and the other supporting the union. And he supports the union as the only vehicle for ending slavery. When Daniel Webster famously says, liberty and union now and forever, one and inseparable, what he means by that is that the only way of achieving liberty for all Americans, including those who are now enslaved, is for us to use the union as the vehicle for ending slavery. And he's left with this sort of terrible choice. Uh, And he decides, and he knows, that if he supports the fugitive slave laws, it's the end of his political career. Nobody in the North will talk to him again. And he knows that if he opposes the fugitive slave laws, the Union will fall apart. And he decides that he has to sacrifice himself to save the Union. And that's what he does. He, He gives this famous speech, March 7th, 1850, on the floor of the Senate, uh, the audience is, is packed to the rafters. Uh, everybody wants to hear what Daniel Webster's position is going to be because they know that the union hangs in the balance. And when Webster stands up and, and turns to his northern colleagues and basically says, you know, you, you have to accept the fact that the Constitution says that they have a right to have slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, we, we, have to, we have to enforce the fugitive slave laws. Um, that's, that's it. He, he cuts his throat. And uh, he dies two years later, um, a drunk, uh, uh, in, 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 you know, completely disowned by everyone. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson famously says that uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson had been uh, a good friend and, and great supporter of Daniel Webster, as had every other great intellectual figure in, in, in New England. Ralph Waldo Emerson says afterward, he says that, that liberty in, in, in the mouth of Daniel Webster is like the word love in the mouth of a courtesan. That's pretty cutting. That's pretty cutting. And um, uh, John uh, Greenleaf Whittier writes this famous poem, Icarus, where he says that you know, the man is dead, that, the, that his soul has left him, the man is dead. Mm-hmm. And, and, and nobody wants to have anything to do with Daniel Webster after that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, having been lauded for this all the way up until that decision, 
Um, but you also make a very good point about it, uh, which is, was the, was the nation ready for the Civil War or for the separation in 1850 as opposed to 1860? Yeah, well, it depends on whether you wanted to have um, uh, Abe Lincoln fighting the Civil War or Millard Fillmore. <laughs> uh, in 1850, uh, the North had uh, economic and, and military advantage over the South. But by 1860, we had dramatically increased the military advantage we had. The Southerners, for some reason, decided to close all of their, all of their armories. They closed, they closed all their, their gun factories. There, there was no place to produce ammunition in the South. They didn't have any cannons. They didn't have any guns. They had nothing to fight with. The North had all of the armaments manufacturers concentrated largely in Connecticut. Connecticut was the largest manufacturer of armaments in the world at that time. They were selling armaments to Europe. So the North had a vast military superiority in 1860 that they did not enjoy in 1850. Moreover, by what happened as a result of the fugitive slave laws is that Northerners for the first time came face to face with slavery. Up to this point in time, Northerners had never experienced the horrors of slavery. You know, it was, a, it was a concept. It was something remote that was taking place someplace else. It's like we can imagine the poverty that exists in the third world, but we don't live that poverty. But when, but when northern uh, uh, judges were forced to enforce the fugitive slave laws and African-Americans were manacled and dragged through the streets of Boston and put on slave ships and sent back to the south, suddenly there were riots in, the, in northern cities all over the north uh, of of people horrified by what was taking place. And this drove public opinion. In 1850, only 10% of the American public voted for the Free Soil Party, which was the anti-slavery party. By 1860, you have Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party elected. And, and so public opinion shifted dramatically as a result of the future slave laws. And, and the other factor here that I think is, uh, is important is Daniel Webster himself. Daniel Webster's words, as I said, were copied and they were uh, republished in newspapers all over the country. When Daniel Webster gave the famous speech known as the second reply to Senator Hayne, mm -hmm. uh, which, was a, which was Daniel Webster's um, attack on the theory of nullification advanced by John C. Calhoun. And Webster, in that speech, has the famous line, uh, liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable, which becomes his tagline. Every child in America has to learn to read by memorizing Daniel Webster's words and standing up and reciting them in class. Not just that line, mm -hmm. but excerpts of multiple speeches. So um, uh, there were the readers that were standardized in the time, um, uh, every, everyone who was literate in America had read from the same readers mm -hmm. in which they had been completely indoctrinated in the philosophy of Daniel Webster, that the Constitution made us all Americans, regardless of our race, mm -hmm. that, that union was, was tantamount, that, that that was the paramount purpose, because that was the vehicle for ending slavery. Everybody had been indoctrinated in that idea. And so by 1860, the North is ready and willing to fight to save the Union. Yeah, you had the detail. That was the detail I was I mentioned right at the beginning that I wanted to bring. I'm in. sorry. I no, 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 no. It was perfect. Line. McGuffey. No, the McGuffey reader. You said yeah. McGuffey. McGuffey. Readers. Yeah, McGuffey readers. 
31 million people in the population, 50, 50 million, million copies. copies of the book yeah. in, in the country. Right. And that I think, and, and that there are all of his speeches, or at least excerpts for lots of his speeches, everybody was raised on that, and they were all getting older, and, you know, and now adults, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So uh, I think that, that was a very telling detail, um, yeah, and, and influence of, of, of a man, you know. Yeah, and the McGuffey readers, you know, were, uh, they, they were intended to sort of propagate the ideas of Daniel Webster. They, um, they were, you know, prior to that, the way in which children learned to read, they would read sections of the Bible. McGuffey Readers was a civic-minded kind of reader, which was secular in nature. Mm-hmm. And instead of reading sections of the Bible, you read poetry and you read Daniel Webster and you read a few other uh, famous speeches. Um, and, and that meant that everybody knew these words. Everybody understood them. Mm-hmm. And Daniel Webster, it should also be said, had a tremendous influence on Lincoln. Um, we now think about Lincoln as being the great man of the 19th century, but Lincoln was nobody. He was nobody. Daniel Webster vastly eclipsed uh, Lincoln's reputation. In fact, Daniel Webster's reputation eclipsed that of the presidents of the United States. Mm-hmm. The president of the United States could walk out of the White House, uh, as John Quincy Adams did, um, and John Quincy Adams liked to go skinny dipping in the Potomac, um, uh, which must have been something. Uh, and um, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine Joe Biden doing that. Yeah. Um, so so uh, Daniel uh, and Donald Trump, we won't even talk about. But the, uh, so so the um, people could, could do that then because nobody knew who the president was. They didn't have an I didn't have a an image of him. But Daniel Webster's image was so famous because he had these sort of oversized head. Uh, He looked kind of like a puppet. Um, He had this huge head and he had these burning dark eyes. Everybody in America was familiar with his visage and they they could identify him. They all knew him. They knew his words. Abraham Lincoln modeled his speeches on Daniel Webster. And he didn't just try to act or sound like Daniel Webster. He literally lifted his best lines from Daniel Webster. So when, when, when Lincoln says uh, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, those are Daniel Webster's words. And Lincoln didn't have to say, hey, I'm quoting Daniel Webster now, because everybody in the audience knew that wasn't Lincoln talking, that was Daniel Webster. Mm-hmm. That's how famous Daniel Webster was. You have a nice little, when, when Lincoln was a, a congressman, a totally unknown congressman, that he came out against the, the uh, war in Mexico, right. which, for good reason, uh, which Webster was also against. And that made them together, uh, get together, and Lincoln started to show up at uh, Webster's, or was invited to Webster's house, and Webster was his hero. And yeah, it's, not, it's not just an abstract relationship. Right. They, right. they knew each other when he was a very young man, relatively yeah. young man. Right, because Lincoln was only uh, a freshman Congress. He'd served one, one term in Congress. Right. Uh, Webster sort of picked him out as a protege, mm-hmm. and and you know um, he would have these Saturday breakfasts with Lincoln mm-hmm. uh, at his home, um, and Lincoln, you know, this was like for Lincoln, this was a real sort of star power mm-hmm. uh, that he should be picked out by the man he most admired. Yeah, uh, very interesting connection um, that I hadn't read before. Um, so there's that. Now I want it before we we finish with Webster and the book. I want to say something about John Fremont. Because John Fremont was this Californian. Those people who are aware, we've done we've done books on him and so on and so forth. He came here as a as a well, uh, 
explorer, if that's what you want to call him. <laughs> so why don't you tell a little bit about, about John Fremont's, uh, it, it can be very short, about his escapade here in California. Yeah, it's hard to make uh, in short terms, but, well, um, so uh, presumably everybody knows that John Fremont was an explorer who was sent to, to California, supposedly, uh, to explore um, the territory. But he was also maybe kind of a mercenary figure, mm-hmm. and he had mercenaries with him. And eventually he sort of sparked, um, uh, intentionally or not, he sparked the, um, or helped spark the Mexican-American War. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually preceded the Mexican-American War. The Mexican-American War was really sparked by, uh, by uh, a U.S. attack on the border between uh, Texas and Mexico. Um, but before that had even happened, John Fremont thought that it had happened. So he thought that they had declared war. And he started, he, he declared California Amer- uh, part of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, this is and before then, gold was discovered. This is before gold was discovered, of course. And, and, uh, and then, of course, he had to retract it because he realized that they hadn't declared war. But then <laughs> they had declared war and then he had to... <laughs> It, it was unrecheck the retract. Yeah. Right. It was, it was a little <laughs> bit of a sort of Abbott and Costello routine. Yeah. 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 I just I just wanted to read one other of my f- favorite lines uh, from Jules book. You only had two. Those were the two favorites. Oh, my two favorites. All right. I, I'm not going to quote the entire book. Among Fremont's daring explorations of virgin territory. He had the temerity to elope with Jesse Benton, the 16 year old daughter of Senator Benton against her father's wishes. Yeah. Can you explain yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I will not explain myself. So, so Daniel Webster gets the compromise he needs. He thinks he saves the Union. In, in, in the analysis you have, at least gave it another 10 years before the fight had to take place, and that might have actually saved the Union in the long run. But he didn't feel that way about it. He, he, he felt debilitated. And, and, and died. And, and, I mean, he, it, he didn't live to see that his strategy was a, a decent one. Well, or, was or at least it, was politically decent, wise. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say that the slave law was a decent strategy. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, he, uh, he was put in the awkward position. So, so what happened was, uh, after he gives the speech in March 7th, 1850, supporting the future slave laws, and he knows his, his electoral career is finished, um, uh, Millard Fillmore invites him to, to rejoin the cabinet, the secretary of state. And this is a way of getting him gracefully out of, out of electoral office. So he joins the cabinet, the secretary of state. And one of the reasons Fillmore intentionally or not did this was because um, the secretary of state at the time did more than secretary of state do today. The secretary of state was sort of like the prime minister. Uh, he ran every department of government except for the war department and the treasury. So he was in charge of, you know, issuing patents and trademarks, and he had to issue land commissions and, and you know, run the territories. And among other things, he was what we now think of as the attorney general. He, he ran what we think of as the Justice Department. Um, so his job was to prosecute the, the future slave laws. And so, it, so he became the slave catcher in chief. Uh, he was the guy who had to send troops into Boston to put down the, the mobs that were trying to prevent them from carrying out the future slave laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so his reputation is just completely ruined. And 
uh, he, he goes back home to his farm in Marshfield, uh, Massachusetts, and just you know, basically dies. Uh, you, you, one detail about to protect the return of one slave, how many troops were there that, that marched him to the thing? It was, it was, it was uh, over 1,000. I remember that. Right. I, I, another math question. Yeah, yeah, another math question. Sorry yeah, about you that. didn't warn me about that. All right. So no math questions. Does anybody have a question? for Joel, about Daniel Webster. Hi, Joel. Uh, I'm curious, you said uh, Webster ran for president several times uh, in the course of his career, and it got me thinking, what was a presidential campaign like in the 1820s, 30s, 40s? I mean, I can imagine people, you know, moving through towns, talking to folks. But was there anything more than just showing up and saying you're running for president? Yeah, great question. Um, actually, there, was, there wasn't even that. I, I mean, what happened was, uh, and this is how, you know, Zachary Taylor could decide to refuse the mm -hmm. uh, postage, postage due letter. <laughs> um, um, basically, it was considered gauche uh, to campaign for office. Um, and so candidates just sort of stayed home. And the parties would sort of circulate their names. Um, now, we didn't always have popular elections for president in in number of states uh, until I think 1820. Uh, I can't remember 1820, 1824. The um, uh, there were still states in which the legislators just appointed the electors without any popular election. Apparently, something which is now being discussed in the Supreme Court again. <laughs> Of the United States, but if we don't terminate the Constitution, as some people have suggested, original, um, uh, original uh, constitutional. Yes, the, right? yes, original constitutionalism. <laughs> um, so, so the uh, um, uh, the way in which candidates campaign was basically dependent, uh, basically on their parties to get people out to vote. Um, this uh, began to change. Uh, well, I shouldn't say. It. What happened was Andrew Jackson really had the first kind of full-fledged campaign. Mm -hmm. He didn't himself campaign, but um, he bought newspapers um, to basically use those as propaganda sheets to to, prop, to propagate his ideas. Uh, and uh, they had really created an incredible chain of of, of newspapers around the country. To, to sort of spread the ideas of Andrew Jackson and attack <clears throat> uh, John Quincy Adams um, as a eunuch. Um, <clears throat> something we haven't heard recently in presidential campaigns. He, he should have gone skinny dipping more often. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, apparently he didn't seem skinny dipping. Uh, so, so the, um, so the uh, uh, campaign of um, William Henry Harrison was, I think, the first campaign in which we, ha we saw something like what we think of as a modern campaign, where people, uh, where there were parades and, and events like that. And um, Harrison ran on this ridiculously made-up platform of having grown up in a log cabin. And they, they built log cabins and paraded them down the streets of cities around the country and had large bands and things playing. And... Um, and, Did they use those same log cabins for Abe Lincoln a couple of years later? Uh, it, well, but, but that was a true story. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. So, so and, and the, um, uh, uh, 
Harrison was attacked by the Democrats as being an old granny uh, and uh, and as someone who was um, who was an, who ha- was a drunk uh, and so uh, and and drank hard cider. So they would have these these huge celebrations where they'd have barbecues and log cabins with bears chained to the roof of the log cabin. I forget where the bear came in, and <laughs> and they would give out you know hard cider. Um, and the people loved it. They responded to it. And so that, uh, that was sort of the beginning of presidential campaigns. It hasn't gotten much better, has it? No. no. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, Joel. That was wonderful. Thank uh, you so much for having me. That was... And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 120th year of enlightened discussion. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks for coming, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.